Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 150 of the Imagineer Podcast. And what an amazing way to kick off another 50 episodes of the show, because in today's podcast episode, I have the honor of chatting with Disney legend Robert Coltrane. Robert officially became a Disney legend in 2020, but it took another couple of years to until there was another awards ceremony, so he was officially recognized in the 2022 Disney Legends ceremony that took place at the D23 Expo in September of this year. In today's episode, I have the chance to chat with Robert about his career at Walt Disney Imagineering. We geek out a bit about ride layout design and about blue sky development and discuss a few of his popular and famous attractions that he's developed, which he's helped to develop so many, including attractions like Radiator Springs Racers, Toy Story Midway Mania, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, Mickey's Philhar Magic, Expedition Everest, Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Seven Dwarves Mine Train, Enchanted Tales of Beauty and the Beast. The list goes on and on, and Robert has such an incredible career that I am excited to learn more about in this podcast episode. At the end of the show, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. My guest on the show today is a brilliant Imagineer whose creative mind has brought us such noteworthy attractions as Radiator Springs Racers, Enchanted Tales of Beauty and the Beast, Toy Story Mania, and Seven Dwarves Mind Train. With a career spanning three decades at Walt Disney Imagineering, his role can be described as, quote, a storyteller, writer, director, choreographer, artist, designer, theatrical showman, engineer, musician, architect, and scientist all wrapped up into one, at least according to Kevin Rafferty. And as of 2020, my guest today is not just an accomplished Imagineer, he can also now formally call himself a Disney legend. With that, I'd like to welcome Disney legend and Imagineer Robert Coltrane to Imagineer Podcast. Robert, how are you today? Great. Great to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you. As we, as I just you mentioned, you've you've done quite a bit that really just scratched the surface. But I'm I'm really excited to speak with you about your career at Imagineering and just have fun geeking out. Imagineering is, of course, my favorite topic. And I wanted to start with a very simple question, kind of starting with the end. You're a Disney legend now, so how does it feel to be a Disney legend? Um, it's. <laughs> I feel exactly the same. I am just a <laughs> regular old Robert. Um, I have friends who have taunted me with the title ever since it happened. And um, um, and it's very nice. And it's a really an incredible honor. But really, you know, we are who we are. So <laughs> here I am. 
I I love that. I interviewed back in the day, she sadly was no longer around, but interviewed the granddaughter of Imagineer Harriet Burns. And when I asked her how her grandmother felt about becoming a Disney legend, she had the exact same answer to say. It's just, you know, she said, I think her quote was, it's a lot of fluff and, you know, it's an honor, but still feel exactly the same. Um, I feel like that's a, a common thread between Imagineers, which is why we love you all so much. Um, now I have to admit, I, I listened to, uh, I'm friends of, uh, of our, of other hot podcast ghost, uh, podcast ghost, podcast hosts over at beyond the mouse on NPR, Illinois. And so I, I listened to their interview in preparation for this. And, um, you know, I, I heard on that discussion she had with them that your first trip to Disneyland happened when you were 11 years old. And, you know, I heard them talk a little bit about your admiration even before then of the Disneyland map and just sort of being really fascinated with that. But I wanted to dive a little bit more into the park experience because I feel like that's a place where a lot of Imagineers I've spoken to really, it suddenly clicked that, you know, this is a place I want to help design. Um, And that may or may not have been the experience for you in that moment. But what were some of those early memories from your first trip to Disneyland that captivated you? Did you have a favorite attraction or an aspect of the park that you really felt um, captivated and interested in? Um, I think it was actually seeing it in person. Um, um, I mean, I'm just a little kid, you know, and and again, I've I've always kind of felt it was a very strange connection I had to the park, even though I'd never been. Um, So that one still stumps me. Um, And when I got there, I remember giving tours to everybody I was with, my mom and my best friend and his mom and my sister and her friend. And I knew where everything was. And they were like, how do you know this? We've never been here. And I'm like, because I'd studied the map. And um, I think everything, it was just, you know, I think 11 years old is the perfect age because you're old enough to get it. And you're still young enough to see the magic of it all like this could not happen in your backyard. You know, this is something incredible and it was so complete. Um, I One of the few memories I do have was the old Monsanto ride, the adventure through inner space. And it, I, we actually rode that before we run, rode the Haunted Mansion and it was a bright sunny August day and my eyes had not kind of, uh, adjusted to the darkness and my sister was in the vehicle ahead of me and like i didn't know how these vehicles worked and all of a sudden i looked over and there was nothing and i thought like my car had left the track and it was just (laughs) i had no idea and then finally we twisted again and i saw her and i said okay what is this thing we're on um and i think i then i was kind of prepared for the haunted mansion where the same thing happens, but I remembered that vividly for an eleven, you know, being four hundred and fifty years ago. <laughs> Not quite that long ago, but yeah, that is a uh, that is definitely an early memory. And the Omnimover system is obviously <laughs> one that was you know, in it, so innovative for its time. We have a lot of I think modern sort of comparisons to it. One of which I I do plan to chat a little bit more about. Um, 
We're going to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to jump around. We're going to keep this kind of fun. You started as an Imagineer in uh, 1990, I believe, and you were a show set designer. Um, so what were some of the steps that you took? We're, we're crunching a lot of a lot of time into a short period of time. It's like, I went to Disneyland and then I became an Imagineer. Um, you know, what were some of the steps you took in order to get into Walt Disney Imagineering or at, as a show set designer at the time? Um, well, I think I started earlier than my trip to Disneyland because I started dancing when I was in, when I was eight. And I think that showbiz got into my soul. My sister actually started three years before I did. And so I think, you know, I'm five and it's just like, you know, you're stunned by the whole showbiz thing. And I, I think at the end of the day, that's what Imagineering is. It's show business. It's, you know, it's a Broadway show that runs forever. It's a Broadway show that's three minutes long. You know, it's these really interesting art form. So I'd say it started with that. Then I was in high school shows, like every single show in high school. Plus, you know, I was junior class president and editor of the paper. And so I got a nice, well-rounded um, background. Then in college, I wrote shows and designed shows and choreographed shows and Oh yeah, I did college. <laughs> On the side, I went to class and for first architecture and then art and design. Um, and I continued doing shows beyond graduating. And then right out of college, um, I got a job with a really amazing art director named Bob Keen. May he rest in peace. He was an incredible guy who um, every day I will say was a baptism of fire because I had no idea what television art direction was. And um, he was a great mentor and boss for me. And eventually, I think I had enough experience that I went and interviewed. So there in a minute was <laughs> my showbiz career, but it was a lot. And I think all of that really helped. Um, a lot of uh, people would come up to me, managers and go, I need more Robert Coltrans. What do we do? And I go, you're just not going to find them in an art school. You got to go to a theater school. You got to go to people who have theater in their blood and they, they understand music and lighting and special effects and sets and acting and all of it, you know, to become a creative director. So um, I think that's what got me to, to show set design. <laughs> and then I'll leave that's it great. with that. Yeah. And, and not to, again, downplay the amount of time and effort and work, the years that go by to make that dream a reality. Um, it's a question I commonly ask Imagineers and one that's always fascinating to hear that trajectory. That show, the show piece of it is interesting, too, because uh, a lot of what you describe, although not the uh, you know exact same steps, but a lot of the original Imagineers got their starts um, coming from working in, in movies and television and, and stage production and it really translates into a, a theme park environment. Um, it's one that Disney does to your description incredibly well, fitting a, a show into three minutes and also an ongoing show that never stops is a, is a pretty cool thing. Um, now, you know, we rather than, than go through each one of your roles, I, I did want to, um, before we get to talking about some of the specific projects you worked on, um, you know, you worked on a number of different it worked in a number of different capacities. You worked in show design, you worked in concept design, you worked in art direction, um, but you ultimately ended up at this position that I feel a lot of 
aspiring Imagineers in particular look up to, but also is one that anyone who is fascinated by Imagineering is always curious about this role, which is an executive creative director. Um, it's sort of a, you know, a, a position that, again, a lot of aspiring Imagineers look up to. And I don't know if a lot of people understand what the role entails. Um, so can you speak a little bit to what the role of an executive creative director at Imagineering is or does? Well, first, well, we can erase the executive word because that was just, I'd been there long enough <laughs> <laughs> that that one gets, you know, thrown on top. But a creative director, you know, actually wasn't a title that was around when I started in 1990. We had different titles and titles for all kinds of different departments change over time, depending on who's running the place and how they want it to, um, to work. Um, a lot of times it was called an art director um, uh, earlier, um, but, but a, a creative director is the, the person who's kind of in charge of the creative vision of a project. So um, um, unfortunately, I think for folks who are like on the outside going, oh, I want that job. Well, like it, <laughs> who doesn't because it's like a great <laughs> job, but you always have to realize it's not about earning that position it's probably about learning everything you need to know so that you become a really good creative director. Like I said, having that theater background, having understanding of everybody's roles beyond the theater, you need to understand architecture and how you fit into a building and how all that works. You have to understand ride systems and understand engineers and what they need to do and how it fits into the building. And so you really do have to understand all the pieces you know, it's just like the director of a movie, exactly, or the director of a play. You don't have to design the set and you don't have to choreograph it, but you have to have the vision and be able to talk to all the people who know how to do those things. And if you do it right, you actually listen to those people. And sometimes their ideas are better than your ideas. And sometimes they're not, but some you have to work through that position and all those different uh, collaborators, just like you would in a movie or a theater. It makes a lot of sense. I love that comparison. It, it really does translate. And I, I, you know, I ask a lot of these questions in the beginning so that people listening who might not know too much about you get somewhat of understanding of your your role and your path. And we can consider that to be sort of like the first part one of our conversation here. Um, you know, transitioning more into the the meat of some of the things I want to talk about. One of the aspects of your career that I've I've heard, I've read, um, is that you, you you do an incredible job at the 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 especially the concept direction of a of a project, which in Imagineering is blue sky is the common word that's used. Um, and I know that blue sky it can be forget even Imagineering for for any company, for any project, for especially any creative project. It's it's exciting and it's intimidating all at the same time when you're starting a project with, you know, Marty Sklar talks about that blank sheet of paper. Um, and again, this is an area where I've heard and read that you've really excelled. So what do you find makes for a successful start and perhaps ends to a uh, the blue sky phase of a project? Um, well, I'm glad you said that last line because blue sky sort of exists in a couple different ways at the company and it's changed over the years and they'll probably continue to change. There's also a blue sky department um, 
that a group of people that develop ideas um, and Kevin Rafferty and I and others were part of that at different times in our careers. And as cool as it is, and as kind of valuable as it is, it's sort of frustrating because it doesn't have a home. And so I remember at one point we had come up with so many great ideas. And of course, they just go in the drawer, go in the drawer, go in the drawer. And I turned to Kevin, I go, we just got to go find a portfolio that needs work because that's how you get a project going. Because ideas are really fun, but when you can't tell people about them because they're in the drawer, it's really not fun. You'd rather point at something and go, hey, come on down to Walt Disney World. We just opened something new and fun. So um, I think Blue Sky is better when it's just how it should be, which is a part of a project's phase phasing. And Blue Sky is the beginning, but a lot of the phases go on. And I will tell you, when I started and I came from television, we had three phases. It was design something, go install it, and then shoot it. You know, it was three things go. And you get there and there's concept development and feasibility and schematic. And there's all, you're like, what? How are you? <laughs> What is the difference between this? Am I still 29 years later? I'm like, we got to figure out how to do this faster because it's <laughs> because it's other groups like architecture that have come with these phases. And and yet creativity does not come in seven phases. It really does get something, an idea on paper and then flesh it out and go. Um, so the the blue sky, I think, for me, when it's in its proper state, which is part of a phase of a project, I think the most important thing to get going is knowing the criteria. And that, um, working with folks like Joe Lance Cicero over the years, um, we always had a board of like, what are we solving for? Because I think there's an old quote from somebody who's like, agreeing on the problem is 95% of the solution. Because so if you come into a room and you're pitching idea, if if the other participants, it may be park operators, it may be management, you have to agree on what you're solving for. So we would always have a board that would say, here's the perceived problems. Are we all understanding what we're doing? Because if we don't, then we don't really care what the answer is or what we've come to the table with. So I think that for me is always the most important. And or the Marty Sklar reference you had, suddenly the blank piece of paper either gets much, much smaller or a whole bunch of it gets filled in. And that makes the the solution much more doable um, because you understand, oh, we're, you know, we need an e-ticket or we need a C-ticket. We need an interactive family ride. We need a coaster, whatever that piece of criteria or a dozen pieces of criteria that just box gets smaller and smaller and it becomes easier and easier to come up with solutions for me. That's fascinating. I do like that idea of agreeing on the problem and <laughs> being a really important component to that. That that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, we we commonly hear about a lot of the the blue sky ideas that get shelved and they're always fun to dream about, but I love that that's, that's part of the process is, is dreaming big and, and thinking about all the possibilities, but then you, you do have to narrow it down to solving whatever challenge or problem might be at hand that you're looking to solve. And I think as designers, we 
we, you know, different from artists who just create art, designers are problem solvers. So without the problem, what are we solving for? So in Blue Sky, you kind of go as a department, great, we can come up with these great ideas, but it's not as much fun because you're not solving anything. But when you get to a park that has problems or has an old attraction they want to fix or a, a need that they want to, suddenly that becomes the puzzle. And the harder you make the puzzle for me, I love it more, you know, because then we're going to we're going to come up with an impossible answer. Yeah, that 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 definitely makes a lot of sense there. Um, to narrow the scope a little bit. Now, I read on the D23 website consider that to be a, a pretty good source of information um, that you like to create ride layouts for your attractions. Um, there's a quote actually from the site it says ride layouts are how we tell our stories. They're like the director, editor, and cinematographer of a movie all rolled into one. Personally, this is an aspect of Imagineering that's always um, fascinated me. In fact, when I was growing up, not to compare this in any way, when I was growing up, played a lot of roller coaster tycoon, and a lot of that is trying to fit everything into the park and think about the layouts of everything. And I've always just loved that aspect of Imagineering. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm curious how you go about thinking about the ride layout for the attractions that you design. I know part of that's probably the space that you're dealing with, but any other anecdotes or stories about how you envision or think about the way that the layout for an attraction might be um, established? Um, I love this question because, you know, I think a lot of Imagineers don't even think about it. And to me, that quote is exactly what I meant is like, I've told people when I've created ideas, I, no, if you had a great idea for a movie, would you hand it over to a director? You go, no way, I'm directing my own movie, <laughs> you know, because I, because some things you're going to learn as you go. And and I, I think for me, the layout is the first time, besides artwork, the first time you kind of go, what do we have? And And I've told other folks, you know, along the process that it sounds crazy, but sometimes the layout informs the story. There have been times where on a weekend I'm working away and I'll call Kevin and go, you know what, this is not going to fit in the box we have. I don't think so. What if we cut this scene and this scene or combine this and we move this over to here? And what if we put all of that into the pre-show and... And so you're like, oh, my God, what a disaster to, you know, <laughs> to a story. But you kind of go, it's not because I'm directing my own piece of work and I'm ready to adapt to my work. So when I find out that it, it, it will work in reality and the ride layout for me, I am so passionate about it. I don't I'm not sure if there is another Imagineer that has more ride layouts existing than I do in the history of the company, because not only did I do mine, but I would do others for things for other folks um, because I just love the, I love the whole aspect of it, everything about it. And, and there's so many stories and so many different examples and things like roller coaster as I've never done before. And when I worked on Everest at the, the beginning, it was like, uh, you know, how do you do this? And you meet with the ride folks and they give you the criteria. And it's the same thing as Blue Sky. You have criteria of how does a roller coaster work? 
you get gravity, then how does that work beyond that? And and yes, there'll be experts who will make the track beautiful and make it, but I had a lot of ride guys tell me, I'd rather have you do the layout because you're worried about the story and what you're looking at and the lefts and the rights and the ups and the downs. And then we can go fuss with it and try to make sure it all kind of works. Um, and in terms of the other kinds of rides, it's sort of the same way. Um, for me, it's always the big idea. What are we trying to do? Big scenes, little scenes, lefts, rights, stops, turns. It's literally where the camera's going. You know, it is a, a director's medium like that. And, and I want to direct that and I want to direct the camera and I want to direct the camera cuts. And that's what a, a ride layout does. I cannot believe not every creative director wants to do their own ride layouts. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that aspect. I mean, the passion that you have for it is something that was always fascinating to me. I remember as a kid, even before Roller Coaster Tycoon, I would ride an attraction and then go home and actually try to recreate it in my head of and even draw it out. What was the what was the path that we took through the haunted mansion or or through um it's a small world. Like what turns do we take and trying to figure out how it fit within the, the building? So it's a passion, you know, definitely a passionate subject for me as well. Um one of those, just to sort of part two to this, one of the types of attractions that is rather unique, we talked earlier about more innovative ride systems I might talk about, is a trackless ride design. And I know you've worked on a couple of these, I believe Pooh's Honey Hunt and Enchanted Tales of Beauty and the Beast. I can only imagine that when you're talking about the the, the role of a director and an attraction, that this probably makes life more uh, makes life easier in some ways, maybe more challenging in others, um, and is, is probably even allows you to be more creative with how you think about the spaces that you move through. So how did working on a trackless ride system differ from working on a more formal track design for a ride? Um, you know, there are pros and cons. Um, I, I think when I was working on on Mickey's runaway, Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway with Kevin. Um, it was, you, you start to give up some of the spatial things because on a track, you can bring things in very close. You have a ride envelope that you have to in safety issues and evacuation and stuff. So you can bring everything in close. Trackless, you know, can leave the track because they're not on one. And so the faster you go, the more room you need around you. And unfortunately, that really becomes a problem, especially when we're trying to get buildings smaller because, you know, for finances, sometimes, you know, building things bigger is not always your friend. Um, I'd say Mystic Manor, I had the most fun um, doing, which was a trackless vehicle for uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. And it was... Um, sort of our haunted mansion for the park. Um, and I remember talking, working with Joe Cicero, and, you know, we had a lot of different reasons why we didn't do the haunted mansion. One was we had heard that the Chinese culture really used, thought of, of ghosts really as their ancestors. It was much more reverential, and we were told kind of to stay away. Of course, other people would say, oh, no, we love ghost stories. And you're like, oh, we'd be so frustrated because you hear different things. And I said, well, you know, that you know, it's not that important. It was always, Haunted Mansion was always the Yale Gracie show, a special effects imagineer, illusioneer from the past. 
And and I said, that's all we really need to do is to have a magic show here and we can come up with our own story. And I go, the, the one thing that never works with a magic show is you don't want the audience to come in halfway through your magic act because they don't get the setup. And I go, the Omnimover was really a horrible idea for the Haunted Mansion. I said, you know, I said back in the 60s, the world, the World's Fair, the 64, 65 World's Fair really taught Imagineers about huge crowds. I think, you know, it took the, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean that used to, that was originally a walkthrough turned into a big boat ride. You know, the Carousel of Progress, huge capacity, small world, huge capacity. They had learned that Disneyland was no longer a little a place. They needed big people moving um, ride systems. And so the Omnimover was one of them. But I go, what's great about a trackless is we can bring people into a room, put on a show, get them out of the room, and really have fun with them. And I said, there's also a subtext, I think, to, to Mystic Manor is that I said, as a sort of a spooky show, I go, just like in a, uh, movies, uh, like a, a horror movie, you're walking through your, you know, the forest with your friends and you're talking and go, hey, Billy. And then you turn around and Billy's gone. <laughs> and you go, like, okay, that's messed up. And then you turn to your other friend and now he's gone. And all of a sudden you're alone in the forest. And I go, suddenly our platoon of four vehicles, one by one, you know, three scenes in, you're by yourself in the Nordic room. And you're like, what happened to my friends? Eventually you do, you know, meet up with your other vehicles, but we had so much fun. I got to, you know, mess with people's heads because of a trackless vehicle that a regular tracked vehicle couldn't do. So those kind of things. And then we learned a lot from Pooh's Honey Hunt and Heffalumps and Woozles. We loved the dance and I, we always want to do a dance show. And so the Enchanted Tales of Being the Beast in Tokyo um, really I hate that anybody would review that ride from looking at a video because it is a choreographed thing. Your vehicles are moving and dancing. We are telling the most beautiful love story ever told through dance, which was the high concept of how we wanted to tell a love story and dance was the way to do it. And we got to use those vehicles in a way unlike any other time. So. There are flexibilities with trackless that were great, but they they come with some of their own problems. That makes a lot of sense. And you're, you're right about a video for any attraction, let alone an attraction like Enchanted Tales of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, just the fact that you do dance with Beauty and the Beast. That's, I mean, that's, that's an amazing aspect of the attraction that's worth seeing. Um, personally, I haven't made the trip to Tokyo yet, but it's one of the reasons I need to get out there. <laughs> I will say me neither, because Tokyo has not been a place anybody could go for the last couple of years. That's right. So, um, that's right. But, uh, but I know what it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, now you mentioned Pooh's Honey Hunt. I have to step back because it's partially based on or you know an evolution of many adventures of winnie the pooh and you referenced earlier um or maybe you didn't reference earlier but I, i'm going to mention it anyway that you also um work with your sister at some points um laurie coltrane on a few projects and i believe this is one that um you had you had worked on your sister with was many adventures of winnie the pooh um so can you speak a little bit about designing this attraction and in particular what it was like to work with your sister on on this project and on 
other projects you may have worked with her? You know, I've had so many people tell me like, how could you possibly work with your sibling? Like I would <laughs> kill them. And I'm like, okay, well, cause you don't know my sister and she's incredible. We have different backgrounds and kind of had different roles for a while at work. And, and we kind of ended up with the same role. Um, but she, I would, I sort of tended to drift towards the front end of a project. Her experience was really delivering on the end of a project and sort of drifted her way forward um, and did amazing things, you know, being a creative director for both Fantasyland in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Um, but, you know, we got along great. So um, I started at the company before she did. Who's Honey Hunt was in the mid 90s. I was working on that and was so busy that when it got funding, I told the team that I couldn't really stay with them. And Walt Disney World wanted a poo attraction. And they go, well, we, except we can't afford the big Tokyo one. We just want a little fixer upper ride. And you know everything about poo. And I'm like, I know every frame, every note of those songs. I know all of it. And uh, my sister was just finishing up some work. She was on uh, Animal Kingdom. And I said, hey, I'm working on a poo ride. Do you want to come over and help? And so we got to develop that together. She's great. We both went to the field on that one um, all the way through. Um, we didn't do the version in California, but the one that was copied both in Shanghai and Hong Kong was the one we did. Um, so we're like, you know, we love we love that one. And yeah. uh, and then we went on to do other things. She called me on, she was working on the animation pavilion for Disney California Adventure. So she called me in um, when I was working on Toy Story Midway Mania with Kevin. I said, hey, would you, I'm gonna move on to more other projects. Can you take this one on to, in the field? So she took that on. Um, in fact, my one of my last projects was Fantasy Springs uh, that's opening in Tokyo. Um, in 24, I think, and um, and one of the pro and I there's four rides, three restaurants, four themed areas. It is massive, and there is an eat ticket Peter Pan attraction that is going to blow everybody's mind. And um, I was moving off of it, and she was available. And I'm like beautiful. She is gonna love this, and she's gonna do great. And um, and she retired, so we have now handed it off to a third person. So we all can't wait to go back to Tokyo and see how it all turns out. I, I can't wait to see how that turns out. Uh, you know, we've seen bits and pieces of it, and I'm looking forward to the uh, the reveals in the future of what that's going to be like. I know it's going to be amazing. Um, I did want to jump to a couple of other specific. Uh, attractions that you worked on. And one of them was it, something that you mentioned earlier, which was um, Expedition Everest. Definitely a, a, a very popular attraction at Walt Disney World. It's one that is um, revered by so many Disney fans. And I, I, you know, I've actually seen the, in some of the Imagineering books out there, these different concepts for the way that the attraction evolved over time. And that that's a piece that is also fascinating to me where talking about blue sky and then ride layouts, that there's this 
almost pivot that needs to happen at some point where you go from this grand blueprint for what an attraction might be and then inevitably what the final layout is going to be. I, If I have looked correctly, it looked like Expedition Everest had um, an even like a longer track or a, a, you know, a, a more intricate design. Like it, it, some of the concept art looked pretty massive, um, not to downplay what it is today because it's still a massive attraction. Um, I guess my question here is, were you involved at all in some of that um, that molding of, of how the track started and inevitably how it ended up? Yeah, um, um, I came on, I was just a, a concept designer at, on that attraction. We were working for Joe Rohde and it was the first time I'd worked with Joe. And of course, he's incredible, you know, and I, I think he has this aura of, you know, crazy <laughs> Joe and, you know, it's just like, wow. And then when you work with him, he really turns out to be this very practical theater guy and, and very much, you know, you think, oh boy, he's not going to care about the budget. He's not going to worry about all this thing. It's just going to be about the idea. And he's like 180 degrees from that. He is such a responsible designer. It was a joy to work with him. Um, and we did go through many different iterations. Even when I came on, they had looked at different ride um, configurations. They had looked at different kind of tricks to do. We ended up with the backwards section of that track um, that freaks people out. Um, and I, I stayed with it up to a certain point and then I actually um, went on to other things and it changed, the track changed a little bit after I left um, and Daniel Jew sort of took over for me and the ride guys and they sort of finished up. Um, but I went through many iterations with Joe and I would do a ride layout really quick. We'd talk, because I mean, we'd talk story and we'd figure out some things. I would do a little cardboard one and then I'd cut out of the cardboard really quick. I didn't even use the model shop and I would, just cut up what the, the profile of the track was. The next morning, Joe and I would come in. He would start putting clay around it. And it was very small. And we'd try to figure out the mountain. Then all of a sudden, there'd be this piece of track sticking out. And you're like, what the heck is that? And you're like, huh? And he goes, well, could you move that and move that? Boom, I go home. And I draw, 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 make another little model, clay, clay, clay. Ugh. Okay, now it's the problems over here. The problems back there. The whole thing grew. The whole thing shrunk. What? A, and we would. I must have done a dozen or more of those in less than a month, and we just kept doing it, looking because you didn't want to have this beautiful track, and then a mountain that didn't work. So we were constantly back and forth between the mountain and the track, and and yeah, a lot of times, ride layouts will do dozens and dozens of iterations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it 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 wound up in a in a really beautiful state between that balance of the the mountain and the track. So that that works out beautifully. Um one other small attraction that is one that is more personally memorable for me more recently, in fact, because I just took my daughter, she was seven and a half months on her first trip to uh to Walt Disney World. And one wow. of the attractions she loved it's one of the most memorable moments from the trip was mickey's philharmagic 
She has no understanding of, she's not seen the movies, but she was, actually she has seen the movies, she doesn't remember the movies, but you know, she was just captivated. I, I had seen the show a hundred times. I was just staring at her the entire time. Um, but it got me thinking about Mickey's Phil, her magic. And I don't know specifically if you were involved in this part of it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, there's at the time there were about when it opened, I think 40 or so Disney animated feature films to choose from. Um, how did you go about narrowing it down to basically the six that were selected initially? And now it's seven with Coco. Did you envision that at some point this might either change or expand to include other Disney movies or Pixar movies in the case of, of Coco? Yeah. Um, I think when we started, it was just Kevin and I at the very beginning. And um, of course, you know, depending on who you're working for back then, and back then it was Michael Eisner and had, a, you know, a lot more affinity to things he had worked on, or, you know, was part of his regime. And so things kind of forced their way forward. Um, and so we were looking at that and we, we, we had Tinkerbell was there for a while and left, it became Donald. And so there was different ways that, you know, all the attractions kind of go through their thing. <laughs> and, um, but we always envisioned, in fact, it was crazy that Coco finally gets in there because when we first concepted, it was like, you know what? We just have these little transitions. And if you can just come up with a little tiny transition, boom, you're in another movie. And I always think, I remember Tangled came out. I went, oh my God, I can see the light. I can see the lanterns floating in the theater. I go, this would be beautiful. Boom, nothing gets done. You know, and, and I'm sure it's the same way with Star Tours, you know, always meant to be updated and it took forever. And then finally, you know, we got we got on board with updating and it's much better now. And it because it, it really represents that whole franchise. And I think you know, you, you would think with all the parks involved with many locations around the world, it would happen. But yeah, we envisioned all that. We we looked at all kinds of different sequences. But like I said, we sort of focused, it was harder to actually get like the Peter Pan sequence in uh, flying. And we had some special effects that were really unique that were cut and that went along with some of these sequences. So we had sequences and effects that went along that was back when we were really chucking out like those 3d movies a lot and so it was like what was the gimmick for this and i remember paul presser was like the gimmick is it's disney movies <laughs> <laughs> so you know just take me into those movies and so you know there we went and things came and went and and those are the ones we landed on and I only yeah, stayed I, that one. I, you know, I really didn't stay on long at all. And Kevin watched it all the way through along with George Scribner and others. Yeah. I mean, it, you think about it in hindsight, um, or at least people like me, I always think about in hindsight, the, what could have been, but most Disney fans, they go and they just, they love it for what it is. And that's, it ends up being the masterpiece that it was always intended to be just because of how it turns out and how you, all the work that went into creating it. Um, a couple of a couple more questions um maybe one 
one more like fun or different one. And then I have a couple of wrap up thoughts or questions for you. So the, the, the more fun one, I guess, which is maybe a really difficult question to answer, but um, you know, you're, you're a fan of parks and, and of attractions and you're also a designer or you've designed a lot of attractions. Um, are there any attractions that you personally did not work on that you would have loved to have been a part of and it could have been a time that you were at imagineering or a time that that attraction was long established long you know long built long before but one that you said man i really wish i could have been like behind the behind those closed doors working on that attraction hmm. you know part of me is i probably didn't in a lot of ways because i'm like you I'm like a big fan of them and you kind of go like i could have screwed up the haunted mansion you know <laughs> like I could have worked on it, but I kind of glad I didn't because it turned out the way it turned out because right. they did it and I didn't. Um, um, though I will say that's one of the ones that I'd love to redo because there are things that you just go, oh, why is this scene in there and why is that? And Mystic Manor was really not a redo of the Haunted Mansion. It was a whole new thing. So it wasn't about, oh, I have a Madame Leota scene in a ballroom in a graveyard. We really wanted to be different than that for a lot of different reasons. Um, but that's one I think a lot of people wish they could do. I I would love to do a Haunted Mansion that says, you know, and Tony Baxter did a little bit for Paris where he got to really rethink it. And, um, and I have some things I'd love to rethink on Mansion. Yeah, that's a lot of fun to think through. Like, how can we how can we evolve this and bring it up to the, uh, you know, to the post twenty twenty world? You know, what could it look like now? Um, that's a that's a really great answer, and definitely one I can see a lot of people would uh, would feel the same way about as well. Um, so a couple of wrap up questions. I you know I used to ask all the time advice for getting into Imagineering, but I feel like you can you can dig that up so in so many different places. So I'm I'm going to ask a slightly different question. It's one thing to get your foot in the door, but I feel like that's just the start. Um, you know, from there, it's you don't get into Imagineering to say that you're an Imagineer. You get into Imagineering to do the work of being an Imagineer. And so, I'm more curious to hear your take on advice you would offer for someone who maybe just started at Imagineering, who's listening, um, and is curious about how to succeed as an Imagineer and grow within the company. Well, I mean, for one. You know, there's like 140 disciplines at Imagineering. So, you know, any one of those, they may have any kind of aspirations. I mean, if you're an estimator or a planner, I don't know what you want to do in your life. Um, if you're a creative person, or maybe what would be normally called a creative person, and you're not quite in the right place, you know, and that's kind of what I was. I was a show set designer. And because a lot of my portfolio included drafting up these TV shows that I had worked on uh, with Bob Keane for years. And they go, oh, he's going to be perfect. And I kept thinking, you know, my old boss, Bob, would say, don't ever get really good at what you don't want to do. And I just, those words have been in my head for 40 years. <laughs> and and I would that's my advice to every single person, because then you will be doing that for the rest of your life. And so... I said, I got to get out of this drafting thing and I got to start. And what I think a lot of people don't want to do is two jobs at once. 
And that's what you have to do because you are paid to do the job you're, you were hired to do. And then I'd go home and I go, oh, I have an idea for a ride. And uh, there's a lot of great people in Imagineering who are in management or on top of portfolios and they will look at stuff. They'd be glad to help people out. If you're really good and you have ideas, they will elevate you. And that's what happened with me. I was showing stuff. Eric Jacobson, Doris Woodward was one um, who I know you'll be interviewing. And, and they saw my work and they said, we got to get him out of show set. We got to get him because he's drafting up people's shows that aren't as good as the stuff he's coming up with. And so I started moving my way over and that's, you know, but you have to be able to, and sometimes it's hard when you have a wife and kids or a husband or whoever at home that you got to be there and you're going to go, but I got to also do on the side, I got to come up with things because I want to move into a different kind of role. And um, you just have to do it. And if you don't want to take that extra step, then you're going to be doing the things you're doing and you're going to be the expert on things you don't want to do. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I do like that, that quote of, uh, <laughs> you want to be really good at something you don't want to do. Um, it's definitely a, a testament. I think, I think that goes for any career. Um, uh, I agree. Yeah. And, uh, last question for you, Robert, I, you know, I started with how does it feel to be a Disney legend? And I want to kind of close out with something that is, um, less about a title and more about a career spent at Imagineering. And you've, you've literally designed attractions. There was a, a quote that was in your intro video at the Disney legend ceremony. And I, I, I should have written it down. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it alluded to the fact that the, the sun never sets on a Robert culture and attraction that you've designed attractions all over the world. There's always an attraction that you've worked on, had your hand on in some way that's being experienced by millions of guests. So now in this, you know, you've spent your your decades in Imagineering, you're retired. How does it feel to look back and see all of these creations around the world and millions of guests experiencing them every day? Yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I, Loaded question. That quote, that quote, <laughs> that quote came from uh, executive producer John Georges, who is a dear friend and the most unsung hero, if there is somebody you need to interview, it would be him. He is the legend of all legends and completely behind the scenes. And there'd be times he would whisper into my ear and he goes, Walt Disney World is the most popular resort we have. Fantasyland's the most popular land. What would you do? And you're like, I hate you. I just... <laughs> How dare you whisper that into my ear and then help me get money and funding to go dream up something like a new fantasy land, you know, but that was, that is what makes him brilliant and makes all of us look good. And, um, and we get challenges like that. And so it's, it's great to know that, you know, the things I've done are everywhere. Um, and he's right. I think there was one time we had a town hall meeting and I was sitting next to him and they were showing the slate of all the things that were on the menu coming and opening in 2014 and 2012. And, and he goes, Robert, three quarters of the things on that list came from your brain. And I'm like, huh, wow, yeah. Because I would later in my career, I really did start on projects, get them going, make sure they were in good hands, either with Kevin or my sister or Joanne Cicero or one of my great colleagues 
And then I'd go help another team solve their problems, getting an idea down on paper. And so there are lots and lots of them out there. I love that right now, as we close our eyes, there are people laughing and clapping and we had done our job and we have helped people get out of their lives for a moment and dream of a world bigger and better than ours. And we do have, a, you know, a great job. It's a, a wonderful thing to think through, um, you know, and it, it's it's a great way to uh, to close out our discussion here as well. But, um, you know, Robert, as a fan, I just want to say thank you for all your your many contributions as an Imagineer. It's, it's one that I, I personally enjoy your attractions and I know one that many listeners enjoy as well. So um, I want to thank you for all that and for taking the time to chat with me today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, anytime. I have so many more stories. So whenever you're available, uh, I, I will take you <laughs> up on that. <laughs> they know where to find me, but uh, yeah, get me before I write a book. <laughs> That's true. And with that, we close out episode 150 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you to Robert for coming onto the show and to Walt Disney Imagineering for helping to arrange this interview for us. It was such an honor and a pleasure to chat with Robert about his incredible career at Walt Disney Imagineering. Of course, I do want to turn this conversation over to you and hear what your favorite Robert Coltrane creation is is. You can send me your answers and feedback in many different ways. The easiest is perhaps on social media, where you can respond on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast, on Twitter at Imagineer News, or you can better yet join our Facebook group, which is the Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, to chat about this subject and all other Disney subjects with other members of this listener community. And you can find links to all of these places over at imagineerpodcast.com. Of course, if you don't already subscribe to the show, perhaps this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast app wherever you might be listening. And if you enjoy the show, I encourage you to leave us a rating and a review, especially in Apple Podcasts or in Spotify, the two largest podcast platforms at this point. That helps others know what they can expect when they hit play on their first Imagineer podcast episode, perhaps incentivize somebody to listen to the show. And importantly, it also increases our relevance in these communities if someone searches for a Disney topic. So please do consider leaving us a rating and a review if you enjoy the show. And if you would like to take your love of Imagine Your Podcast to the next level, definitely consider joining our Patreon group, which is over at patreon.com slash Podcast. I've got a link for you in the show notes and over at imagineerpodcast.com. Long story short here, it's a way that you can help to support the show. And in exchange, you get access to bonus podcast episodes, a private Facebook community, watch parties and events that we host together as a small close-knit community of friends and streamable binaural audio that you can download on the go it's one of my favorite benefits and one of our 
Patreon members' favorite benefits, and there's much more. Of course, these terms and conditions are subject to change depending on when you're listening to the show. So the best way to find out what we have currently available is, again, by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. And as always, I want to thank our Patreon members. And when you're ready to book a vacation to Walt Disney World or Disneyland or any of these Disney destinations where the sun never sets on a Robert Coltrane attraction, definitely look into working with our travel partner, Magical Park Vacations, which you can learn more about at MagicalParkVacations.com. But they are a complimentary service that can book and help you plan out your next Disney vacation. They also book travel to other destinations as well. So if you are considering a trip anywhere and you need some support, definitely look into working with Magical Park Vacations. And when it comes specifically to the Disney parks, you'll want to consider working with their travel or sister company, WDW Park Planners, over at WDWParkPlanners.com. They are a concierge planning service that can help to really plan out and pick apart the specific details of each and every day for your Disney vacation. Come up with the perfect itinerary for your family. It's a wonderful service that I have personally used before. The whole team does an incredible job and provides ongoing support. They go above and beyond in helping families. So consider working with them over at www.parkplanners.com and their in-person touring company over at magicalparktours.com as well. Last but not least, I want to encourage you, as I always do, to go after your hopes, dreams, your goals. If you're listening to this when this podcast episode is out, we've got a few weeks left in 2022. We're going to reset the clocks to 2023, and that gives us a chance to reflect and think on, think about the accomplishments that we have checked off for 2022, the progress that we've made in our lives, in our careers, in our goals and what we can do in 2023 to itemize and list out those specific action steps, those specific goals, or those specific dreams that we can take. While I encourage you to think about this during any point of the year and throughout the year, changing things over to the new year does give us a reflection point to think back on what we have accomplished in 2022 and what we are looking forward to accomplishing in 2023. And I want you to remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. ドロマゼルこよいあなたをお迎えしますことは最高の誇り最大の喜びですではどうぞお口ろぎくださいゆっくりおかけになってお城のキッチンが腕により
もお味は天下一品一度食べたらトレビアンお疑いならお皿に聞いて When you're at Walt Disney World Resort for the world's most magical celebration every moment is amazing the joy is never ending and the memories last a lifetime because when you celebrate with us nothing could be more magical Contact Magical Park Vacations to book your Walt Disney World Resort vacation today. Call 585-662-3686 or visit MagicalParkVacations.com.